Hey, welcome to the Late Night Lockdown. I'm your host, Ami Khan, tonight. Matthew is around, but working on some acting work and music. Um, but I just wanted to pop on real quick because this is going to be leading into... We just finished watching our seg after a tentative agreement official member informational meeting online. It's a mouthful, I know. Um, through the SAG-AFTRA YouTube channel. They just had it uh, tonight in Los Angeles, November 16th, 2023. I had a friend there, Reagan, who was uh, experiencing it herself. I was watching it from the stream from home. And really awesome. I'm just grateful that we have that so that we can actually inform other people if they can't physically come to the space. Uh, but it was also cool to see it was like a city council. Like everybody was able to come, RSVP if they could, um, physically or online and voice their opinion through questions, Q's and Q&As. And a lot of them were repetitive and a lot of them didn't understand the jargon, like the law jargon that Duncan Crabtree Ireland keeps talking about. And it's hard, it's layman's, it's not layman's terms. We need layman's terms. I think they need to focus on how to translate that better. But either way, it seemed like it's very informative. It's very dense. So this is going to be for people who really like need to know this information who are working in the industry or have family or friends and loved ones and want to and or want to support just in general the industry um at large because this is a crucial time in history guys this is going to affect every industry so it's pretty important to just pay attention to at least this one right now to see where it leads um we have i mean again i say we because i am a part of it i do have a membership id um, but I'm not a full-time member yet, and so I can't vote, and that hurts me so much because I want to be able to voice my opinion and how it affects me because I do get residuals from, um, La La, I can say it now, but before we weren't able to, so I do get residuals from my work in La La Land and American Crime Story and a couple other things, but that's my bread and butter, so if that can change for the better, I'm all for that, but it has to be also the right time. And I, th- I think it feels like I'm glad I watched this. I hope you enjoy watching. Like, please go to YouTube if you if you can and watch it yourself. But if you can't and you're driving or something, and you need to listen to it and you want to hear it and you can't find it anywhere else. And I hope by golly that this podcast can help you with that. Um, but also to document real life right now as a documentation uh, of history and cinema and Hollywood history, because that's exactly what it is. And I sometimes wonder, is this somewhat how the people, the artists who were in the silent film era felt when new technology of audio came through and they thought it was just going to be a fad. And look how that turned out. And now we're here, where I'm recording this audio literally from my phone, which is basically a Star Trek tricorder in real life. And that's, that's the reality. We're really talking about AI, robots, technology taking over jobs possibly it's already happening and again i'm not saying that to alarm anybody or feel monger or cause paranoia it's just a reality it is our real life reality now and we need to learn to coexist like anything else if it's different we need to learn about it grow with it evolve with it but we need rules and regulations on it and so this is really tough because everything they answered in the questions tonight 
they were damn good questions and rightful questions, excuse me. But it's a lot to take in. It's very overwhelming, but it's so important to really research, do your homework and understand because it will affect you somehow, whether you like it or not and whether you believe this or not, it will affect you. So the best way to understand things is to communicate and educate. So I hope this helps. If you have any questions, drop it off to us. If nothing else, please share and keep spreading positivity and band with humanity because we're only stronger together. Why are you not working now? Come on. all of you out here thanks for coming out to this meeting really appreciate it and i had a chance before we started to go out and talk to some folks and i see so many of you that i've seen on the picket lines and helping make this entire negotiation and strike process happen so i just want to acknowledge that and say how great it is to get a chance to talk to you in person here although i must admit i didn't recognize everybody because without you having your picket sign and your shirt on and you know i didn't have my hat so uh, anyway, I'm Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, National Executive Director, Chief Negotiator of SAG-AFTRA, and just, thank you. And I just, you know, all, all of the work that everyone here did over this summer, standing in unity, getting out there on the picket lines, doing what was necessary, helped our negotiating committee create the kind of leverage that allowed us to continue these negotiations and ultimately make a deal with the AMPTP and that unity, that solidarity, I think means everything. And I have seen a bunch, yes, thank you. That's great, yes, let's applaud that. Because that, that is what it's all about. We're all in this together, and that's why we're here now. And I especially want to note that I saw a bunch of strike captains. Strike captains from here. Strike captains! And I wonder if y'all could all stand up. Thank you. So, our strike captains. everybody knows this but we could not have done this without our strike captains every single picket line here in Los Angeles every single day and you guys brought it and you brought it with not only a sense of steely determination but with a sense of compassion for your fellow strikers with a sense of helping take care of everyone and it made it possible for us to do that for 118 days so thank you so much I can't thank you 
And of course, I want to make sure we acknowledge all of our members who participated in the wages and working conditions process, the W&W process that started end of last year and starting in December and worked its way up to our entire, I mean, that's where our proposal package came from in the first place. And I hope that all of you who've gotten engaged in this cycle will remember that and be fully engaged in our next cycle of wages and working conditions process as well, because that's how we figure out what needs to go across the table. That's how we determine how our proposal package should look. So our agenda today is gonna to include a presentation of the new contract specifics. We're gonna address in advance some answers to frequently asked questions, and then we're gonna open the floor to questions, as you can see by the mics that are out there. But first I wanna just make sure we introduce everyone who is joining us up here on the dais today, who are gonna help answer questions and add some nuance to the conversation. Of course, she really needs no introduction, as proved by your response to her before, but to my immediate right, SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher. Right, um, President of the Los Angeles Local and Negotiating Committee Vice Chair Jody Long. Too loud, man. Sorry. Nice. To her right, Los Angeles Second Vice President and Negotiating Committee Member David Jolliffe. <laughs> to my left, Chief Contracts Officer and Co Lead Negotiator Ray Rodriguez. And to Ray's left, Chief Communications and Marketing Officer and Strike Manager, Pamela Greenwald. I also want to introduce the members of our negotiating committee who are seated up here on the dais as well. And so I uh, just want you to know who they are. Starting out with the members of the committee, Secretary Treasurer Jolie Fisher. Woo, Jolie! She was here, maybe she stepped out. I think she might have stepped out to there. Yeah. Oh, is she coming back? Okay, great. Uh, Francis Fisher. Francis! Thank you. Michelle Hurd. Ron Ostro. Charlie Bowden. Natalia Castellanos. Jason George. Sarah Ramos. Uh, Sean Sharma. Kevin E. West. Ben Whitehair. Ben Whitehair. Thank you, Ben. Dan Navarro. All the actors enjoy this. Danielle Town. Nicole Cyril. Oh, Bella. <laughs> Just paused it. 
Samantha Hartson. And last but not least, Woody Schultz. And since I can't actually see them uh, because I'm looking in this direction, right behind us are some of our staff subject matter experts. So can you all just stand up so the members can see you if you can. These are our staff who helped us with negotiations. They're just handful of the dozens and dozens of staff who are part of these negotiations and are here to help us answer questions tonight. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Michelle. Um, <laughs> I could see you. I knew who it was. I knew who it was. Me too. Me too. Um, so next, just real quick on the agenda and sort of ground rules for tonight. We have a detailed presentation that we're going to make. It's going to be followed by Q&A, as I mentioned before. For the Q&A, we're going to rotate to the um, mics that are on the floor in the aisles. Oh, no. The Someone's already being kicked out of the room. Minutes. So please wait until we're done with the presentation before you start lining up for questions, or you're going to be standing for quite a while, and we don't want that. Um, there will be sergeant-at-arms at each of the mics to facilitate the Q&A process. And these are uh, LA strike captains, so please be nice to them. <laughs> They, they have given and continue to give a lot to this union. We have about an hour and a half, maybe a bit more for questions, but we'll, we'll go long a little bit if we need to. And um, Oh, I think you'll need to. I'm sorry. We're here to hear what you have to say and to answer your questions. But if you can, try to keep your questions focused and to the point so that there's enough time for everybody to um to give I'm curious how many characters we'll questions. see with these questions, so like who, how they're allowing this. So I think at this point we're going to pause for a moment. As a city open council kind of like meeting. The group before we go on. Me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was here just last night at a Her concert. <laughs> and it, it, has, it was a totally different vibe, I must say. <laughs> But um, it's, uh, it's so good to be here, and it's so good that so many of you came out tonight because you're, you're doing your due diligence. This is a really, you know, big deal, and uh, it's, a, I think, um, a, 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 a real kind of turning point for our union, something that really hasn't happened, such a milestone since the last 1960 con a contract. So it's a big deal and one that we expect will be built upon for decades, probably through the rest of this century. So, you know, it's good that when, you know, in coming here and then also we're live streaming, I don't know if you know that, but for everybody around the world that is tuning in, welcome. Uh, this is education knowledge is power and i applaud you all for wanting to make an informed decision so uh bravo to you and i'm sure that you're very eager to get on with the show so thank you so much thank you for everything you you know your member participation is the heart and soul of this union so thank you for being here and 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 let's proceed.
Awesome. <clears throat> so thank you for that. Thank you for that, Brandon. So what we'll do is go ahead and uh, put the slide deck up uh, on the screen so everyone can see it. And we'll get started with the presentation. So Ray and I will be sort of tag teaming on this. I get to start it off. So okay, yeah. Uh, it is the 2023 TV Theatrical Tentative Agreement, as you can see. So let's just go ahead and get started. We want to start out by talking about the valuation wow, it's like presentation of this form. just to give you a context of what um, of what it represents. So the value of this contract is a little bit more than $1 billion over the 31 and a half month term. And that includes both new compensation and also includes benefit plan funding increases. And specifically, that's $697.6 million in additional wages and residuals and $317.2 million in the form of additional contributions into the SAG After Health Plan, the SAG Producers Pension Plan, and After Retirement Fund. So really want to just acknowledge this as a milestone because there is there has never been a contract in this industry before that has exceeded this milestone. And while really it's important to look at what that means in detail, which we'll do, um, in the aggregate, it's an extraordinary number and one that really reflects the hard fought strike that we carried out over the last uh, four months and the negotiations that, that this committee sitting behind me uh, did over the preceding 35 days before that. So um, continuing on, let's talk about minimums. So I think we, our committee is justifiably proud that we have broken the so-called industry pattern. And what that means is it has always been the case, at least in the last few decades in this industry, that whatever the first union was that went, they established a pattern of minimum increases and everybody else had to just accept those increases. We started out this negotiation saying we were not gonna do that. We rejected the idea that the pattern controlled us and we were gonna negotiate for what we felt our members needed. And so here's what the result of that is, is an unprecedented wage pattern, which includes two wage increases in the first year of the contract. First, a 7% general wage increase that took effect on November 9th. And then in addition to that, next July 1st, a 4% uh, additional wage increase, which means when you compound those two numbers together, it's an effective 11.28% wage increase during the first year of this contract. Then during the following year, starting on July 1st of 2025, there'll be an additional 3.5% wage increase. Just so that's, see, those I are the minimums. And I should just is. note, there's a, a, there's a different uh, pattern for plays. background actors, which we'll talk about shortly. Next, we want to turn to the topic of artificial intelligence. And oh it's God. definitely clear to me that this is of great interest to our members. Anyone who's been on social media over the last few days or just paying attention knows that this has been a really hot topic of conversation. And I'm, I'm looking forward to us having a dialogue about this tonight. But in this contract, we have provided for the first time comprehensive rules regarding informed consent and fair compensation for the use of artificial intelligence in the form of digital replicas or in the form of synthetic performers or synthetic fakes as we like to call them. And I do wanna just note that this comes from a place of a blank page. There was nothing about this in this contract prior to these negotiations uh, for reasons that I'm sure are apparent. And so this is something where we have, we have created uh, these regulations, these limitations and restrictions from whole cloth. So let's first of all talk about employment-based digital replicas. This is the scenario where the producer hires you and you're gonna go work on a project and as part of working on the project, they wanna create, they wanna scan you and create a digital replica of you. 
So if the employer is going to do that, they have to give you 48 hours notice in advance of their intent to do that. And they have to ask for your informed consent. And that means that consent has to be clear and conspicuous. It can't be buried or hidden in your start paperwork or your contract or a deal memo or a voucher. Um, in addition, that, in, that consent has to be reasonably specific. It has to give reasonably specific details about the intended use of that replica. And any time that you spend creating that replica is paid for work time. In terms of compensation, you get paid for that, um, not only for the creation of the digital replica, but for any use of that digital replica based on the amount of time that it would have taken you as a human performer to do that work. And you get that compensation plus pension and health contributions and residuals for that as well. And to be very clear, because I know this has been a, a question, a, lot, a question I've gotten frequently about this, if the producer wants to then use that digital replica in any other way, in any other project, in any future project, for any other purpose, aside from that picture that you were engaged for, or that episode that you were engaged for, they have to secure your informed consent to that. And with one specific exception, they have to do that at the time of its subsequent use. They can't do it when you're initially hired for this project. And why is that important? That's important because it gives you the leverage, if it is ever going to be subsequently used, to negotiate for that when this job is not part of that conversation. You've already done this job, and then after that, that's when they can ask you for that consent. The only exception to that is when there's a multi-picture deal, and if there's a multi-picture deal, they can seek your consent for each part of that multi-picture deal, but they have to have that informed, specific, detailed, informed consent at the time or otherwise they're gonna to have to secure that consent later when you have more leverage. There's another kind of, of um, uh, digital replica that we also have gotten regulations for. It's called an independently created digital replica. And I wanna just note, this is particularly groundbreaking because one of the things that the companies could have done is refuse to negotiate with us over independently created digital replicas because the work done to create them isn't work that's being done under our contracts. This is, for example, if you decide to go create your own digital replica and license it to producers to use, or if you partner with a third-party company that creates digital replicas of performers and then you are making a deal with a producer to use that digital replica. In those scenarios, there's not sort of a traditional start to that employment relationship with studios, but nonetheless, we were able to secure provisions protecting your right to inform consent over the use of those replicas. So even though they had to negotiate a deal either with you or with a third party company that you're in business with for purposes of creating a digital replica, you have an independent right of informed consent to know with specific details the intended use of that digital replica in that project. And you have a right to negotiate compensation for that as well. And any compensation that you do negotiate for that use will have pension and health contributions paid on top of it. So you will continue to gain eligibility for your benefits from that use. Okay, next slide. Oops, that's not right. There we go. Uh, next, let's talk about digital alteration. So digital alteration is a concept that the companies actually raised as part of the back and forth that we had over getting regulations on AI to begin with. And the concept behind digital alteration was that they wanted to make sure that they could do things that they can currently do using editing, CGI, VFX, et cetera, 
um, that they that these new regulations on AI wouldn't stop them from continuing to be able to do those same kinds of things that they've traditionally done, but with the use of AI technology instead of necessarily relying on traditional editing, VFX, or CGI. And so what that, what that does is that is limited to certain types of changes, and you can see a list in our uh, in our summary of the contract. By the way, I, I guess I should mention, the summary of the contract, which is about 18 pages long, is found on our website. Um, and I will also make an aside to mention, I know a lot of people have asked me, can we see the full contract language? We wanna see the full drafted out memorandum of agreement. And so I just wanna let you know that we are working very hard to get that done and out to you. It has never been done before in any prior negotiation where we have been able to get the MOA completed during the ratification process, but we know how important it is for members who wanna see that. So we're working really hard to do that, and I do expect to be able to release the full drafted MOA within the next, within the coming few days or by next week at some point. Um, so just know it's coming. It's really, really long, so please understand that's why we've gained a lot in this contract, but no one's trying to, you know, no one's trying to hide the ball or anything like that. We'll get it out to you as soon as we possibly can. Um, and in the meanwhile, you have the 18-page summary to, um, for late bedtime reading. Um, so uh, anyway, um, it, any kind of digital alteration that is made has to remain as scripted or as recorded or performed. So they cannot use the digital alterations section to try and add scenes into a project, to try and have your digital replica do things that they didn't get proper consent for. It's a very limited and constrained use. It's meant for post-production alterations and things like that. Uh, another example is it could occur when the use of a double would be permitted to do the same thing. And um, there is a provision that allows for lip, face, or body movement or voice alterations for translation to foreign languages or changes necessary for marketing in a specific market. And I do wanna just note, and a great example of what that means is, there's a company that actually has been consulting with SAG-AFTRA for several years called Flawless that, does, um, that, that uses actual voice actors to do the, the foreign language dubbing, but uses AI technology to adjust lip and facial movements so that the dubbing can be done with an exact translation of the original script instead of adjusting the script to match the mouth movements. That's done, the, their marketing for that, their, their effort to push that is about creating a higher quality result, not about getting rid of actors' jobs or using voice synthesis or anything like that. That's the kind of thing we want to encourage because it does help protect actors' job opportunities. And that's something that, for example, would be encouraged or allowed by this provision. Next, we want to talk about generative AI. And this is something that I know a lot of people are very, very concerned about, scared about, and understandably so, understandably so. The scenario that was the subject of our negotiations in generative AI was the scenario where a company decides not to create a digital replica of a particular actor, because that's all covered by our digital replica provisions. It's where a company wants to use generative AI to create a actor that doesn't really exist at all in the real world. But that's not really created from nothing. That's created from a trained AI data set that might include who knows how many people. Um, and that's how that AI learns to actually create the output that it's going to generate. So obviously we're very concerned about this, I think in, in the long term, in terms of its implications for the, the, the business and for careers of our members. 
In the short term, what we're really concerned about is making sure that there is not an economic incentive for these companies to use synthetic fakes instead of real actors. And so what we did achieve in this contract is we achieved, number one, a notice requirement. So if these companies do generate any synthetic fake performers, they have to notify the union that they're doing it, and we have a right to negotiate over consideration or compensation for that. And the reason for that right is not so much to compensate the people who might have trained that data set, but to help make sure that it's not economically advantageous to the companies to create synthetic fakes to use instead of real actors. So that is what we will use that negotiation right to do to make sure it's just as expensive, if not more, to use a synthetic fake actor instead of using either a human actor or a specific human actor's paid for digital replica. So that's what those provisions are intended for. We, we did try to get a union consent provision. We fought for it the entire 118 days of the strike. We were not able to get it despite the massive leverage you all created for us by being out on those picket lines every day. The leverage was not enough to get the companies to agree to a union consent provision, but we were able on the very last day of negotiations to get an individual consent provision where if a recognizable facial feature of one of our members is used as part of the creation of a synthetic fake performer and that, that generative AI system is prompted for that by the use of their name, then in that scenario, the company must go and get the individual consent of that person before they can create that synthetic using any of their, using their recognizable features. So, um, so those are the accomplishments in generative AI. Um, is it everything that we would like it to be? No. Uh, we do expect to continue negotiating for additional gains in the generative AI area in the future. But to be perfectly honest, this is the greatest um, restriction that we could achieve with the leverage that we have. And we do believe that this, especially the notice and compensation negotiation requirement, will protect our members from any kind of developments in the use of synthetic fakes over the term of this contract before we are back in negotiations again in two and a half years. So that's where we are on generative AI. And the last little bullet here is about semi-annual meetings. And that may not seem like something that sounds so great. I mean, who wants to go to a semi-annual meeting? But in fact, um, the companies have committed to meet with us twice a year, every year during the term of this contract to discuss what they're doing with AI, where it's going, and our concerns about it. And I think that'll have that'll have real value to us in two ways. Number one, it will help us prepare for the next round of bargaining, and it will also help us make sure that they understand the kind of pushback that they're gonna get if the implementation of AI is going in the wrong direction. So I'll just stop Hi. for one second Welcome. to just say, I know and I understand there's plenty Jeff of people probably in this room and certainly amongst our members who would rather that AI didn't exist yeah. or would have liked us to do something to just stop AI from happening. Yeah, that's fine. You should clap for that. I, I totally get that. And here's the real that's truth. The real truth is we yeah. can't stop AI from happening. Okay, I know people don't want to hear that, but it's true. We cannot stop it. We do not have enough power. The entire AFL-CIO together doesn't have enough power to stop AI from happening any more than anyone could have stopped the invention of the printing press, the industrial revolution, the invention of the assembly line, the invention of television. You know, there were people who didn't want television to occur, right? Because it changed things. Uh, the invention of the internet. None of those things could we have stopped, no matter how much leverage and time and strike time, and et cetera, we put in. And that's the truth about AI as well. And that's why our strategy has been 
we use our maximum leverage to put guardrails around it and to channel the way that AI is implemented into things that are helpful, hopefully, or at least less damaging to our performers and to the creative part of the industry. And I think if you read the almost, I think it's about five pages of that summary that are devoted to AI, or I think when the, when the MOA is done, it's gonna be 15 or 16 pages of contract language that are specific to AI, something like that. I think you'll see that there is a tremendous advance in limiting how AI can disrupt is there any way to move careers. The... And it may not be perfect, but it is, honestly, it's a hell of a lot better than a blank page the or ASL not having those protections. No, it's, it's their thing. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. While I acknowledge They're trying that, to work on it because it'll come work to do up to advance those see AI through, in like the you see the print. Um, talk about background actors and artificial intelligence. Tech people are um, trying to figure for it out. For everyone in this room who's background, let me just tell you, you uh, were a very on. important part of our AI discussions throughout yes. this negotiation. And I think, I think right. you know that because uh, you were a big feature of our initial press conference at the strike. I know a number of background actors have come up to me during the course of the strike and said that they really appreciated that we called out specifically what the companies were trying to do mm -hmm. um, as regards to background. And let me just tell you, that provision, the one about they hire you for a day and own you for your lifetime, is gone. It is not there. They cannot do that. Good. It is prohibited. At least. So a few things. One thing that I that I think is a really important um, uh, thing in background actors uh, for background actors in AI is the, the covered background positions are protected in this contract. The companies have agreed that they must hire human actors, human background actors, for every covered position under this contract going forward. So that means you cannot be replaced by a synthetic fake or anything else, they have to hire up to the numbers. If they're using background, they have to hire them, human beings under this contract up to the numbers. Now, they can create with your consent, they can ask you for consent to create a digital replica. And you might say, well, if they have to hire background actors up to the numbers, why would they create a digital replica? Like, what's that for? So what that's for is if they want to then, um, above the numbers, use your digital replica in a future scene, if they want to extend the day, whatever. But note this, there's a specific provision that says they cannot evade engaging you by creation of a digital replica. So what that means is, if they create a digital replica of you and it's <coughs> used on another day above the numbers, you will be paid as though you worked that day and you will receive your pension and health contributions as though you worked that day, even though you might be working another job that same day, by the way, and also getting paid and also getting pension and health contributions. So That's what, I'm yes. what they cannot do is they cannot use a digital replica. They cannot make a digital replica of you without your consent. And they cannot use that digital replica of you without your informed consent. And if they get your consent, they have to pay you as though they had hired you for that time. That is what the provisions call for. I think this is probably a good moment to talk about this issue that's come up, and I don't have a slide for it, but you'll probably all recognize it, which is this concept of you know something being a condition of employment, and what does that mean? And is it okay that they say that, that if, if they say to you, we want to create a digital replica of you, and if you won't agree to that, we won't hire you, because that's basically what we're talking about. So a few things to say about that. Number one, there are lots of things that are conditions of employment. And I just want you to know, this is gonna be a condition of employment, just like a lot of other things. Your salary is a condition of employment. 
whether you're willing to relocate to another location to do a job as a condition of employment, whether you're willing to do nudity on a project as a condition of employment, whether you're willing to um, wear a certain wardrobe is a condition of employment, um, whether you're willing to say certain lines is a condition of employment. And what that means is if you're not willing to do it, then they will potentially cast somebody else, right? That's what it means. And so when you're engaged, I'm sure every single one of you has had questions asked of you. Are you willing to do this, 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 or that? Here's the details of this job. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to work for scale? If you're not, that's fine, but maybe we won't hire you. That's how that stuff works. And so our main concern with artificial intelligence and especially with digital replicas is number one, ending this practice of them springing it on you at the last minute with no warning, no time to talk to a friend, an agent, a manager, a lawyer, the union, that is over because they have to give you advance warning of the intent to ask you to create a digital <coughs> replica. Number two, they have to tell you what they're going to do with that digital replica when they ask you to create it, and, and then if they decide to change that, they have to come back and ask you for consent later on for any kind of changes, and you can say no. And let me point out, you know, if you're starting out on a job and they say, look, we are going to create a digital replica, they might say it for a number of reasons. They might say, I know someone on our committee, you know, the producer said one reason they wanted to create it was for insurance reasons, uh, which is kind of gruesome. But, you know, what that means is if something happens to you during the project, they want to know that the project might be able to be finished. That's happened with several projects that actually have occurred in life. Or they might say, we want you to, we want to be able to put you in a scene with a certain kind of computer-generated character or whatever. They tell you these things and you can either say yes or no. And if you say no, it may not work out for that project. That's just the reality of it. But I do want to point out, once they've engaged you, if they come back to you and they want to change what it is that your digital replica consent was for, you have the right to say yes or no to that. And if you say no, they have still engaged you. They still have to pay out your contract they have to make a choice if they're going to use you or not, but they're going to have to pay you because once you're engaged and once that consent is signed, any changes are at your discretion and you can say no and the union will back you if you do say no. So just know that. Um, so I assume we'll probably have more conversations about condition of employment, but that's what that's all about. Um, so let's keep going. I know I said this was going to be a 45-minute presentation. I feel like you used up a lot of it already. Um, actually, now I get to turn it over to Ray, so this will probably be a lot faster. A reality. Um, <clears throat> thank you. So um, I get to talk to you about our new high-budget SVOD streaming bonus. Uh, this is where our search for another source of revenue in the area of streaming has led us to. So for performers that are working on high-budget SVOD seasons of a series, a mini-series, or a long form that hit a defined success metric, there's going to be an additional payment due. Um, that success metric requires that the production in question be watched by at least 20% of the domestic subscribers during the first 90 days of the exhibition. So that's what's going to trigger eligibility for the money. Um, that money is going to be split so that 75% of it uh, goes to, so 75% of the annual residual that you would have gotten for that show an additional 75% is gonna to go to the cast of that show. Um, so they're gonna get an additional 75% uh, of the streaming bonus for that year, or sorry, of the residual for that year, and then the other 25% of the money is gonna go into a fund. 
that fund is going to have trustees from the union and trustees from the AMPTP. Those trustees together are going to develop a set of distribution guidelines to decide how exactly that money is going to be divided. Uh, but that money is going to be used so that the additional um, income that we have bargained for doesn't go only to the performers who are on those most successful shows, but the, but the existence of this, um, of this fund is going to allow us to spread that money out more widely so that there's more people who become eligible for additional money out of this streaming bonus. And so that's how it's going to work. It's going to be uh, it's going to be based on an annual residual. 75% is going to go to the people whose show actually triggered the success metric. 25% is going to be distributed more broadly according to a set of distribution guidelines that the trustees will develop. And we should say more broadly within folks working on those streaming platforms, just so we're clear about what more broadly means. It doesn't mean more broadly broadly. It means within streaming to help. I mean, the whole point of this was to help make streaming a more sustainable career for people who are working on those shows, given the shorter number of episodes, the longer hiatuses between seasons. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to uh, help make that sustainable for everyone in that platform, not just for the folks on the most successful shows. Because the truth is, streaming platforms, while they are a lot of their success is driven by the most successful shows, they're not built only on the most successful shows. They're built on everything that's on those platforms, and the work of our members on them um, is really significant. All right, I'll continue on to discuss the advanced payment of residuals. Um, you know, this has been this has been a problem within our membership where people are prepaid their residuals and it looks like initial compensation money. And so somebody thinks that they have achieved their quote, they've successfully bargained for their quote, but really <coughs> their initial compensation is less than that and the difference has been made up by a prepayment of a residual so that when it now comes time for folks to get their residual because the show is an exhibition, they are unpleasantly surprised to learn that that residual is now not forthcoming because they already got it and they didn't realize they got it as part of their initial compensation. So there are a number of things that have been done uh, in this cycle to try to solve that problem, uh, to create additional transparency so you know how much of that money is initial comp versus how much of that money is residuals. The first thing is there has to be a separate rider, a separate document that actually breaks down for you this much of the money is initial comp and this much of the money is the advance payment of a residual so that it's very clear and transparent. In addition to that, uh, with the exception of a direct deposit circumstance, uh, the, you're gonna get a separate check so that your initial compensation check is gonna come in the way that your initial compensation ordinarily comes and the advance payment of your residual is going to be processed through the union like a residual so that when you get it, it's gonna be really obvious to you, this is residual money, this is not part of my initial comp. So it will help to cure that uh, confusion. If you're getting your money direct deposited, then the advance pay of residuals can be deposited at the same time, but you do have to get reporting in connection with that that is going to break it down for you and tell you how much of what just got deposited is initial comp and how much of that is the advanced payment of a residual. So uh, that is also part of the better reporting that you see on that slide so that it's gonna be much clearer to you now what money is initial comp and what is advanced pay. In addition to that, 
there is a new limitation on what can be advance pay to you that for somebody who is making less than $75,000 per week or per episode is going to cap the amount that can be advance paid out of your residuals to 15% of what you're making so that there's a maximum now on what can be advance paid to you. Um, in addition to that, which is not actually on the slide, but uh, the thresholds that currently exist for advance pay have all been increased. So the contract right now has a series of thresholds and only money that you are being paid in excess of those amounts can be used for the advance payment of, the of a residual and all those figures have gone up so that there's less money available to advance pay and more of your money has to be treated as initial comp, which is what we want. So a number of different things have been done to try to solve the problem of people being advance paid money that they actually think is initial comp. Yeah, you can applaud for that. <laughs> transparency is good. Uh, we've also achieved some improvements in the residual formula for high budget SVOD, that's high budget programs made for streaming. This is in addition to the streaming bonus that we just talked about also the baseline residual has been significantly improved. Um, so you understand how these improvements will work. I just remind us that the way this residual works, it starts with what you made on the episode. So whatever your pay was, that's called total actual compensation in contract language. And um, that's, the, that's where you start with for calculating the residual. That amount is subjected to a cap. So it gets capped off in terms of how much of that money gets counted in the formula. It then gets multiplied by a percentage, and that percentage goes down every year. Every exhibition year of the show, the residual gets smaller because that percentage decreases. And then that, that percentage, once you, once you generate that amount of money, that is also further adjusted based on the size of the platform. So if you're on a platform like Netflix that has a lot of subscribers, that amount goes up. If you're on a tiny new platform, that amount could go down. So it's adjusted by the size of the platform. So with that as the, as the, as the basics, to explain the improvements, the first thing that I'll talk about is uh, the caps that I mentioned before, where your income is subjected to a cap for purpose of this formula, all those caps went up by 2.5%. Um, as well, uh, the actual percentage, the exhibition year percentage that that got multiplied against, those percentages went up for years 8 through 12. So for programs that have been on the platform longer, that percentage gets higher and it generates more money for you. I mentioned that that then gets adjusted by a subscriber factor. That accounts for how many subscribers the platform has. The lowest two subscriber platform uh, uh, factors were eliminated so that the, the ones that would decrease your residual the most, those subscriber factors don't exist anymore and you start with the 65% factor. Um, other improvements that were made include a completely separate now foreign residual that is based on foreign subscribers. Up until this point, your residual for foreign exhibition in this area is 35% of your domestic residual, and that's how it was calculated. We now have a whole different set of foreign subscriber factors that are gonna be applied to the same formula. So you're gonna calculate your foreign residual the way I described the calculation of the domestic residual, 
but there's going to be a different set of foreign subscriber factors so that based on how big the foreign footprint of that platform is, your money is going to be adjusted up or down on that basis. But the net result of a separately calculated foreign residual is going to be a very substantial increase, like a 76% increase in that residual. So that gets to that gets to increase by a lot. We also eliminated the 35% crediting from 35% uh, of scale crediting that apply to certain smaller platforms as part of how this was initially bargained. That's gone, so that's good for us. We don't want that crediting. That money that you then get to keep. Um, and grandfathering was eliminated for any new seasons of an existing series. So this formula has been improving since it first got into the book in 2014. And there were some shows that were still, they were still using the old formula for those shows. No more of that. We now have the new formula that's gonna be applicable to all seasons of all shows. Um, and as you can see, uh, uh, in the last bullet, there's going to be improved transparency. I mean, one of the issues that we have had in the area of streaming is that it's a black box in terms of things like viewership. Like, you used to be able to rely on things like Nielsen to tell you how Nielsen. well or poorly a show was doing, how many people were watching it. That has never been the case for streaming, but we are now going to get that viewership information is going to get reported to us by the company, so we're going to have much greater visibility into how your work is doing. Yeah, all of that is worth definitely applauding for. All right, I'll move on. Um, some additional residuals changes. Um, there's been a modification agreed to for the promotional reruns when launching a new primetime series. Um, up until now, it's been the first rerun of the first three episodes that are allowed to be done without payment. Um, that can now be any three episodes, so it doesn't have to be the first three. Um, some of these are, are producer provisions, just to be honest, you know, uh, to, uh, that we agreed to. So that's one of them. They can now pick any three episodes. Um, there is a provision for limited theatrical release of a television program that allows them to pay a percentage of distributors' gross receipts-based residual, basically a percentage of whatever license fee they get for that. Uh, and that has been expanded to include high-budget SVOD pictures, 66 minutes or longer. So there's a new category eligible for that residual. Um, there has been a modification to the theatrical promotional exhibitions. It used to be that this only applied to a show that had not yet exhibited its last episode. Um, that condition has been removed, so it can be a show, um, it can be a show now that has exhibited its last episode. Um, the foreign overage thresholds have been increased by 3%. This has to do with the way residuals are paid for, for foreign free television, where it starts off as 35% of minimum, you get a fixed residual, and then once the license fee exceeds a certain amount, you start getting more money. The amount that has to be exceeded went up by 3%. That's what that means. Uh, and finally, there were some adjustments to how we are doing new media inspections. Uh, that are really not that consequential, but instead of being, uh, it, it is now uh, annual instead of biannual, and it's 30 days notice instead of 10 days notice. Um, so some of those uh, technical provisions have been adjusted. 
I will move on from there and talk about the casting process. Casting process. Uh, this was definitely an issue that generated a lot of energy in our wages and working conditions process. It was very clear members felt ill-treated by the self-tape process and that there was a real need for regulations. And we have established a, a lot of regulations now around self-tape, um, the first of which is uh, reasonable turnaround times. So wow, you nice. now have to be given at least 48 hours, excluding Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays. So. Nice. You get your, uh, you get your weekends back from self-taping. Uh, <laughs> if, <laughs> nice. you, if you are Thank a minor, you. that's going to be 72 hours for minors to do a self-tape. Um, there are now uh, page limits that apply in terms of how much material they can ask you to record on a first audition, a first self-tape of eight pages and 12 pages for a second or subsequent self-tape. Self um, there is, they cannot require memorization of a self-tape. Uh, they have to allow you to hold sides or use a prompter. Thank you. Uh, there's now uh, increased transparency on whether the role is cast. So you have the right to ask now whether the role has been cast. And they have to endeavor to answer you and tell you whether that role has been cast. Um, they cannot require any paid editing software or any specific equipment for a self-tape. Um, there is now a limitation on what they can ask you on the slate. So it's a standard slate that you're now going to be asked for every self-tape. Um, they cannot ask for nudity or for anything more revealing than a swimsuit you would wear at a public pool. They cannot ask for stunts. If you're a dancer doing a self-tape, they have to provide you with the music. They have to provide you with the choreography. Nice. Uh, the amount that they yes. can ask you to do is limited to four eight-beat counts. And it has to be something that can be performed in an eight by eight space. So, you know, dancers that live in apartments can still self-tape their, their auditions. Well done. And, and they can only request solo performances. So they cannot say to you, as they have done to dancers, go recruit some of your friends mm -hmm. to do partner dances or multi-person dances. None of that. They can only request solo performances. That's awesome. Um, the self-tape itself has to be securely stored somewhere where only people that have a legitimate business purpose in doing so can access it. Uh, if they ever want to make a public use of your self-tape, they have to get your permission, and they have to get your permission at the time they're going to do it, not when you're submitting the self-tape and people are going to be incentivized to say yes to anything. No, at the time they want to do it, they have to come back and get your consent. Um, and they have to also provide you with an opportunity to do either a Zoom audition or an in-person audition if you're one of our members that doesn't particularly like self-taping or don't feel like you do your best work on a self-tape. Oh. There's going to be a Zoom or an in-person option. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, right? That's like, I've never heard of these regulations ever with casting. This is great. So that's from, from great. zero to a whole lot of regulation on self-tapes. Thank you. Um, more on the casting process. Uh, for virtual interviews and auditions, they have the same increased transparency obligation on whether the role has been cast. You can ask that, and they have to endeavor to answer you. 
Um, no, uh, no paid software, no, um, ed no paid editing software or specific equipment for a virtual audition as well. Uh, again, no memorization without payment, so they have to let you hold your sides or use a prompter, and no nudity. Uh, so, the, again, you can't wear anything more revealing than a swimsuit you would wear at a public pool in a virtual interview. And as well, there's a provision that they cannot ask you to remove a cover-up until such time as you are in a private virtual setting with casting only, like not in the waiting room. Um, they cannot ask for stunts at a virtual interview or audition. Same rules for dancers. They have to provide you with the music. They have to, it's limited to four eight-beat counts. The same requirement has to be doable in an eight by eight space and solo performances only. Um, they have to securely store it if they decide to record it. And once again, if they want to use it publicly someday, when they decide they want to do that, they got to come back to you and get your consent for that. Um, all of this that I have talked about with self-tapes uh, and virtual interviews and auditions, uh, there's a specific dispute resolution process for that. Um, this was a big fight to get any, any dispute resolution process here. The producers very much wanted to do this on the honor system. <laughs> yeah, that, that was our reaction too. Um, <laughs> so there's a six month moratorium on claims while they figure out how to comply with all this stuff, but they have asked us to bring to their attention any violations. So we say to you as well, bring to our attention any violations so we can bring it to their attention and they can use their six months effectively to become in compliance. Um, once that six months is over, any claims will be referred to a conciliation committee where we will try to resolve it. And if it can't be resolved, it will go to grievance and arbitration and we will bring it in front of an arbitrator. Um, new regulations on general casting calls. So we have protections now that say that you cannot um, do this in a way that requires a performer to pay any fee. And you cannot give people who do pay a fee any preferential treatment in the casting process. So that is going to affect how you know businesses like Actors Access are able to do their work. It's not a prohibition on offering people an upgraded level of service if you want it. Um, but you, they have to also give you a way to submit yourself, get the audition materials without paying anything, and not lose anything but in terms of a lack of preferential treatment if you choose that option. Um, they, have, they have agreed to have a meeting with us to discuss payment uh, discrepancies in different geographic markets. Or, some of our folks feel very much that they are uh, discriminated against. There are folks that are outside in, of LA and New York in particular in terms of how roles are cast and paid in those markets. So we're going to talk to them about that. Uh, and there are obligations now spelled out uh, where they have to accommodate performers with disabilities, they have to accommodate seniors, and they have to accommodate minors in the casting process. So. Lots of, lots of new stuff in the casting process, and I will now turn it back to you. Great. Thanks so much, Ray. So now let's talk about pension and health. So there are significant increases to the benefit plan contributions um, for episodic work in the form of increases to the caps, the episodic caps. And that is projected to generate over $180 million over the term of this contract to the benefit plans in, in, in additional contributions. 
So the increases in contributions not only benefit the plans by bringing more money into the plans, but it also helps the performers who are working on those shows to continue to gain eligibility because they'll also gain eligibility for those earnings. And so in half hour series, half hour episodes, that increase is 67%. The cap goes from 15,000 to $25,000 for contributions uh, on those earnings. And on our series, it went up by 43% from 24,500 to $35,000 uh, per episode. Those are very substantial increases, and it's, it's very gratifying to see those caps increase because they haven't been increased for a very long time. And um, we're really excited that we were able to accomplish that. Um, continuing on, let's talk about performance capture. So after more than two decades of trying to achieve formal recognition of performance capture, which is work that is done by our members under our contracts every day, and yet the companies have cycle after cycle refused to take on a formal acknowledgement of that. In this contract, for the first time, the companies acknowledge coverage of performance capture services, both for live, act, live action, theatrical and, te and television motion pictures, and also for animated theatrical motion pictures. So that's, yes. <laughs> Work that's done under the performance capture provisions will be covered by the terms of the applicable schedule. So depending on what type of work you're doing, schedules A, B, C, F, G, H, J, uh, with some exceptions. Um, and I do wanna note, uh, one of the things that, that we were not able to achieve in this round, but we certainly be going back to get in a future round of bargaining is a full application of consecutive employment and drops and pickups rules to performance capture. That was something we tried hard to get. We weren't able to get there on that point, but it's not something we're gonna forget about or leave behind. I do also wanna note that this, the, the, this provision does not cover motion capture services as defined, and it also doesn't cover reference capture or reference modeling. Reference capture and reference modeling uh, reference modeling in particular is something that has long been acknowledged as not something that's covered under this contract. Um, but uh, that's certainly the definitions of that are something we'll want to push on as well in future rounds of bargaining to help make sure it's really clear that the exception for motion capture is very, very limited. Um, continuing on from performance capture, next let's talk about Schedule F. So we have been able to get substantial increases in Schedule F thresholds, which will result in more money in people's pockets, Schedule F performance pockets. And the reason why, for those of you who aren't that familiar with Schedule F, if you're compensated in accordance with the Schedule F uh, minimums, then, the, then some things become freely bargainable or negotiable that otherwise aren't under the contract. So there's an incentive for employers to pay people at least at Schedule F minimums if they're going to um, make use of them in that sort of way. So here are some of the increases that are happening to those uh, minimums, which haven't increased for a while also. First of all, in theatrical motion pictures, that Schedule F threshold is going to go from $65,000 to $80,000. For half-hour TV and new media motion pictures, it's going to go from $32,000 to $37,500. For one hour and longer TV and new media motion pictures, it'll go from $32,000 to $45,000. And for multi-part closed end motion pictures or miniseries, from $40,000 to $47,500 per picture and from more than $4,650 a week to more than $5,150 a week. So what that amounts to is a range of increases from 17 to 40% 
in the thresholds for Schedule F performers, and I think that will um, translate into significant additional earnings as well as greater protections for our members working below that threshold. Let's see. Is that me? This is you, right? All right, let's talk about series regulars and options. Um, these are the provisions that regulate when you have to be, when your option has to be exercised and when you, now when you have to return to work after your option is exercised. So uh, the first set of important changes is to the money break. Uh, right now, the only people who have the benefit of these limitations on options in the contract are people who are making at least, or making less than $32,000 an episode. Those numbers are gonna go up, uh, that number's gonna go up for a half hour program to 65,000 per episode, and for an hour program to 70,000 per episode. It will stay at 32,000 only for minors on children's programming. So that means many more people are gonna have the benefit of the option protections that are in the collective bargaining agreement. Um, how those option protections uh, work will also change. The options are the option period is now going to be 18 months, but it's from commencement of principal photography of the prior season. So the entire production period of that season of your show is going to count towards your option window, which is not how it works now. It's right now it's 12 months, but it starts only after your production period is completed. Um, so this is gonna be 18 months starting from the uh, commencement of principal photography. It will be subject to a, a maximum of three extensions of up to three months each. But for each such extension, they're going to pay an episodic fee that is not creditable against future money. So that means it's new money that they have to pay to extend your option period and there's a limit on how many times they can do it and how long those extensions can be. Um, uh, another element of the change, and this is brand new for the AMPTP agreement, is that there is now a regulation around when they have to start you or start paying you for the subsequent season. Up until now, we've had option regulations that say when they have to exercise the option and tell you, yeah, we're bringing you back for the next season, but there was no regulation around when they actually have to start you working on that season uh, or start paying you on that season, which led to long gaps between the option being exercised and people actually going to work. Now the rule will say you, they have three months from the end of the option period to get you back to work or start paying you. They can extend that once for up to two months, but they have to pay you a now for your subsequent season episodic fee in exchange for that extension. Again, that's non-creditable, so it's separate new money that they have to pay you, and that is the only extension that they get uh, as far as returning you to work. And then the last element to talk about here relates to people who are not eligible for these option protections because they are at or over the money break. So people who are making 65 or $70,000 or more, um, there are still folks who are in that category who because they have been held out of the market for so long have lost their health insurance coverage because they've been unable to go get other work and earn eligibility. Uh, and there's now a provision that if that happens, if you are over that money break, and you lose your uh, health insurance while you are under option, 
that employer is now going to have to go to the health plan and make a special payment to extend your health coverage so you will not lose your health coverage in that situation. Go on from there. Uh, okay, we'll talk about another improvement for series regulars. This is in their relocation allowance. Uh, this is uh, what you are paid if you are engaged on a show. Let's say you're an LA-based performer, but your show's actually being made in Atlanta. Uh, right now, what they have to pay you is $10,000 per season for either two or four seasons, depending uh, on, the, on the size of the series order, and that's it, then their obligation is over. Um, those rules are gonna be changed moving forward so that it's now, they have to pay, they have to pay you $5,000 a month for up to six months. So that's a maximum of $30,000, which is uh, obviously a tripling of the, of the money, but as well, there is now no limit on the number of seasons. So it's not two seasons or four seasons, it's for as long as you're on the job. Um, this, yeah, this shows some of the math based on employment patterns. This is a 153% effective increase in relocation allowances. Um, the one exception to this that I'll mention is if you are already a series regular on a show and you have exhausted the maximum number of relocation allowances that you are entitled to for that show, this does not restart the clock for you in that situation. So those folks will have to either bargain for that or this will become applicable on their next gig. Move on from here, Duncan. Um, the SPAN provisions have also been improved. So span, the SPAN money break that you see here, this is the minimum that you have to be paid in order for an employer to bargain for, to bargain freely on the subject of overall production time, the total amount of time within which your services must occur and be finished. Um, that number has not changed for many, many years, uh, but in this cycle we did achieve an improvement from 20,000 to 25,000 per episode, from 100,000 to 125,000, uh, for a series presented in a combined series format, and from 150,000 to 190,000 for a 13 episode guarantee. So for the first time, we have uh, increased the span money break. Uh, some provisions now that are intended to benefit in particular recurring guest stars. Right now, under the collective bargaining agreement, you can be engaged without a start date. So they can hire you for the episode without telling you when your work is going to commence on that episode. And that has really been a problem, in particular for recurring guest stars, because it means there are long periods of the year when that individual cannot, uh, cannot firmly commit themselves to another project. They can't represent themselves as being available for another project because they don't know when they're going to have to start on uh, their recurring guest star gig. So we've made an improvement in this area. Um, they now have to provide you minimally with a soft work window, and that is whatever your guaranteed period of employment is, whatever the guaranteed amount of employment is, plus or minus five days. That's the soft work window. So they have to at least give you that as an indication of when your work is meant to occur. Um, and if you get a job during that soft work window, you go back to the employer, they have 24 hours, excluding weekends and holidays, 
to either tell you we're going to give you a conflicting work date, so we're going to tell you when you're coming to work, and uh, or they can say to you we're going to move the soft work window in order to accommodate your job so that you can take the job that you got. Um, if they move the soft work window to accommodate your job and it turns out that it's impossible to reschedule you to a period where you're available, um, then they don't have to pay except for the work that you already did. So if there's a, a balance on your guarantee in that one situation, they would not have to pay out the balance of that guarantee. But this uh, collectively represents a serious improvement over the status quo where they can just tell you nothing about when it is you're going to work. So. Uh, we'll move on to the major role provisions. Um, there's been an expansion in the application of major role so that the major role minimums, the higher minimums that you can get based on your, your billing, um, now applies to half an hour and hour high budget SVOT series for the first time. As well, it will apply now to the first season of a pay TV series. Previously, it had only applied to the second and subsequent seasons in pay TV. Uh, so uh, this is more money for folks that achieve this billing on more shows. I'll talk through as well two new forms of engagement that we agreed to here. Uh, they may be familiar to some of you who have worked under the Netflix deal. Um, uh, these are the modified deal performer and the modified guest performer forms of engagement. Uh, if you're engaged as a modified deal performer, they have to guarantee you at least, the number is now $21,538 per episode in order to use this form of engagement, and that number is going to go up and continue to go up by general wage increases. Um, if, they, if they do that, if they engage you this way and guarantee you at least this amount per episode, they get 10 work days per episode and 30 uh, overall production days per episode. So for each such episode, they can get 10 days of your services that can occur within a 30-day window, um, and you are free to take other jobs outside of the, outside of the actual work days. Um, your residuals are going to be based, in that case, on total applicable minimum salary uh, based on two weeks at scale for each episode. Um, and they can multiply this across multiple episodes. So this is this could be used for like a recurring guest type situation as well, where they, they hire you on this basis. There's a junior version of the modified deal performer, the modified guest performer. Um, you have to be guaranteed at least $14,000 per episode. That's also going to go up with the general wage increases. In exchange for that, they get eight work days per episode to occur within a 23-day period per episode. So eight work days within 23 overall production days. Um, the residuals will be calculated based on one week and three prorated days. Um, and in terms of how these days get scheduled under either the modified deal or the modified guest performer, when you are engaged, they have to tell you what your work days will be for the first 30-day period or 23-day period if it's the modified deal. So that's to give you enough lead time to try to find other jobs on the days that you're not actually scheduled to work. And then going forward, they're going to have to give you at least 14 days advance notice of your work days. Again, the idea is to give lead time to people so that you can try to find other work on the days 
that you're not working under your modified deal or modified guest uh, form of engagement. So I'll move on from there. Uh, consecutive employment. Uh, we have agreed that for a day player on a series or a mini series, they can have up to three drop pickups per episode. Uh, and they can use a soft pickup date. So they can give you the date plus or minus four days. Um, and they can pick you up on, this, on, the, on the pickup side as either a daily, a three day, or a weekly. Uh, for weekly performers on series and miniseries, they can have up to two drop pickups per episode. It's the same soft pickup date. They can give you the date plus or minus four days. And again, they can pick up as a daily, a three day, or a weekly. Uh, we have some provisions, again, this, uh, this and the consecutive employment stuff should also be familiar if the, uh, anyone's worked under the Netflix contract uh, on franchise projects. And that's defined as a series of related projects that have common settings, characters, and or storylines. lines. Uh, so uh, the way this will work is if you are engaged on more than one franchise project at the same time, you're working on two franchise projects, uh, and there's a day that's a whole day on one franchise project, but a work day on the other. You'll get paid for the work day, but not the whole day. And um, if there is, if uh, for reuse of photography purposes, they can ask you to consent at the time of engagement, except for nudity and bloopers, to be able to reuse photography or soundtrack from one franchise project into another franchise project but only into another franchise project. Before we move on, we should just emphasize, for those of you who might be thinking about stuff we've talked about regarding franchise projects as it relates to the AI provisions, those provisions are gone. There is no franchise project concept in the AI provisions anymore. Um, only that multi-picture deal uh, concept that we talked about, but not a franchise concept at all. All right, another um, breakthrough for us in this negotiation was the establishment of terms for high-budget advertiser-supported video on demand. This area right now is completely free bargaining. Uh, no scale attaches to work for uh, advertiser-supported new media platform, uh, and only certain limited terms out of the television agreement apply here. Now. Uh, for high-budget AVOD programs that meet the same uh, budget test as a high-budget SVOD program, uh, the TV terms are going to apply and scale is going to apply, so it's going to be treated a lot like television work or high-budget SVOD work. All of that is going to apply uh, with certain exceptions. There are certain terms that are going to apply based on the 2020 contract rather than the 2023 contract. Uh, so there are a couple. There are some of those terms that will lag a little bit, uh, but otherwise it's going to be the same terms as TV or high-budget SVOD. Uh, the way the residual is going to work is your initial compensation is going to pay for 26 weeks of availability on the on the AVOD platform, and then you're going to get a six percent of distributors' gross receipts residual plus P&H uh, for further exhibition on that platform. If it goes to a paid new media platform, like subscription streaming, transactional video, et cetera, it's a, these are the standard residuals that apply across our contract. It's a 3.6% residual for that. That's inclusive of P&H. And if it goes to traditional media, TV, home video, et cetera, 
all the traditional residual formulas are going to apply to the traditional media exhibition of a high-budget AVOD program. So these high-budget AVOD terms are now going to look a lot like the high-budget SVOD terms. And again, that's supplanting what is now free bargaining. So this is a, a big leap forward uh, for high-budget AVOD. Okay, let's talk about background actors. Do I, have we got some background actors in the house? Woo! Woo! All right, it's good to see you all. So we have an unprecedented wage pattern for background actors, and I want to say one of the reasons why uh, our background actors are going to get a larger initial wage increase than anybody wage else is increase. because we all know that the impact of inflation is felt most heavily by those who are earning at the lowest end of the scale. That's a reality because when necessities go up in price, it's a necessity. It's called a necessity for a reason, and you can't just cut them out or you know have less of rent or less of food. So we took that very seriously and we did focus our efforts to make sure that um, that, that would be accounted for. And so in this contract, there will also be a two-step increase in the first year for background actors. That started with an 11% general wage increase effective November 9th and will be supplemented by a 4% general increase effective on July 1st, meaning a compounded first-year wage increase of 15.51% for background. Yeah, I think that is, a, that is a good result and definitely addresses the impact of inflation that's, that's hit all of us, but especially background actors during the last several years. There will also, thank you so much, there will also be uh, another 3.5% increase, just like for in all of the other um, general wage increase patterns, effective July 1st of 2025. Um, I want to just note that background representatives on this negotiating committee fought hard alongside all the rest of us for background gains in this contract. And one of the things we really fought for was to achieve what we call the single schedule X, meaning eliminating the differences in background terms between the East Coast and the West Coast. Now, before you clap for that, I tell you, we didn't get a single schedule X. We were not able to achieve everything out of that. But we were able to achieve what I personally believe is the most important part of that, which is equalizing the number of covered background positions on jobs between the East and the West Coast. And so upon, yes, upon the ratification of this agreement, there will no longer be any difference in the number of covered jobs for background on television or on theatrical between the East Coast and the West Coast. And what that means is a projected increase of 10,700 workdays per year, covered workdays for background as a result of that equalization. And I just want you to know that doesn't mean we've given up on a vision of a single Schedule X. It means we'll be coming back to that again in the future. But it also means that having equalized the background number counts on both coasts, uh, that we have achieved a very significant part of that. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud of that. And I'm proud of our committee members for making that happen. Just some other gains in the background area uh, for stand-ins who work on half-hour on half hour multicam shows who rehearse and or perform in the role of a cast member during a run-through, they are going to receive a $150 adjustment. And P&H will be paid on that $150 adjustment as well, so that will help with earning uh, health and pension eligibility. Also, photo doubles who are required to memorize and deliver scripted dialogue on camera will receive an additional $150 adjustment as well 
also plus P&H. And we've also agreed to, to make the same as what we have in the principal part of the contract, that late pay will be told, which means put on a hold, if there's a bona fide dispute over a payment um, that's made under the contract. So that's an equalization there. Um, it doesn't mean late pay is going away. It just means if they actually is a legitimate contract interpretation dispute or factual dispute, that late pay will be suspended while that dispute is resolved. Um, continuing on, I think this is still me. Yes, stunt coordinators. So we have achieved uh, for the first time in this contract fixed residuals for television stunt coordinators who are not performing on camera stunts. Um, we, the, the way that this is structured, first of all, I need to say it will take effect a year after ratification. So this takes effect uh, approximately December of next year. Um, but, uh, but the important thing is breaking the company's resistance to this because as I'm sure you all are aware, the companies have been um, maybe not welcoming, but open to the idea of taking pooled residuals and adding stunt coordinators to that. But when they've had to actually pay extra for fixed residuals, that's where they've drawn the line. We were able to break past that in our contract with Netflix previously, and we were finally able to break past that in this negotiation with the AMPTP. And uh, we are eager to continue working on this to expand upon uh, those residuals for stunt coordinators as well. Also, we had a priority in this negotiation to attempt to equalize the rates for flat deal stunt coordinators between television and theatrical. While we weren't able to get all the way there with equalization, we were able to achieve outsized increases for television flat deal coordinators of 10% in the first year, 6.5%, and then 5%, which doesn't get us all the way to equalization, but takes us a big chunk of the way there, and that's something that I think is a good thing. And finally, we had received reports that our flat deal stunt coordinators' time was being abused and they were being brought in way too early and kept way too late beyond when they were needed on set and this was eating into their rest periods. And I'm sure all of us can agree that the last people that we want to have inadequate rest are stunt coordinators. Right. So uh, after bringing this issue to the attention of the AMPTP, they've agreed to issue a bulletin to producers instructing them not to have flat deal stunt coordinators come out any earlier than necessary to supervise stunt activity and not to keep them any longer than necessary to do that as well. And we'll certainly be monitoring to make sure that there's compliance with that. Well done. Okay, moving on to singers. Um, so first of all, vocal contractors will now have that vocal contractor fee paid on top of multi-tracking or sweetening. So that's a, a gain for singers. And singers who are required to dance, whether in rehearsal or on camera, are going to receive a 25% uh, bump of the applicable dancer rate. So that singers who are required to dance will no longer be expected to do that additional work for free. It will be part of that uh, additional adjustment for that rate. And likewise, for dancers, uh, it's not actually the first bullet, but I'll go there since it's parallel. Dancers who are required to sing or lip sync, whether in rehearsal or on camera, will also receive a bump of an increase of 25% of the applicable singer rate. So that dancers who are required to do that are not doing that work without getting additional compensation for it either. So um, very pleased about that. Nice. Also, and if I were a dancer, I would certainly be very, very, very happy about this. We are eliminating rehearsal rates completely. Rehearsal rates will now be paid exactly the same as on-camera days. Nice. And I just want to 
commend the dancer community and our dancer rep on the committee who helped make that case to, to the producers that rehearsal days are not only often as hard, but often harder than on-camera days. And so a discounted rate for those days is no longer going to be a thing. Nice. And finally, the companies have, in, have agreed to increase their efforts to make warm-up space available adjacent to the set so that the purpose of warming up is not defeated by having to travel a distance to get to set after warming up. And so we'll be monitoring compliance with that commitment as well. Um, next, talking about holidays. Um, we have two new holidays, effective January 1st nice. of next year. Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Juneteenth. I, I'm very happy about it, although I have to say, I don't know if you react the same way I do, is like, Martin Luther King Jr. Day is not already a holiday in this contract? How is that not even a, a thing? I can't believe this industry has let this go for this long, but it is now a holiday in this contract, and also Juneteenth, and rightfully so. So very pleased nice. about that. Damn right. Speaking about equity and inclusion issues, first of all, we have achieved an agreement to provide additional access to healthcare in a couple of ways. First of all, um, just for those who might not already know it, our health plan already has a benefit to make sure that if our members who are working um, on location somewhere um, are in a jurisdiction that doesn't allow equal access to reproductive health care, the health plan will provide for travel expenses for them to return to their home or to another location to get that access to health care. But there was a gap. Yeah, and yes, thank you for that. I agree. That's been in place for a little while, but there's been a gap because obviously we sometimes have members who are working in those locations who are not receiving benefits under the health plan, who aren't eligible uh, for whatever reason. And so now the companies have agreed that there will be funding provided for a benefit to um, cover that kind of travel for any member working under our contracts in such a jurisdiction, regardless of their eligibility for, for the health plan. We also have agreed to make a joint recommendation to the trustees of the health plan to expand that travel benefit for reproductive care to include gender-affirming care as well. Yes. And that will also be covered under the benefit that I just mentioned for people who aren't uh, eligible for the health plan. So those two pieces will both be covered as part of the agreement that we've reached here. As far as translation goes, there will now be a prohibition on translation of uh, your own or any other performer's sides in the sense that that is not work that's covered under our contract, and if the producer wants to engage you to do that, then they need to bargain separately and pay you separately for doing that translation work. Continuing on, uh, as to stunt doubling, there will there's now a requirement that the producers consult with the union to identify additional sources for qualified stunt performers if they feel that they are unable to find a stunt performer who resembles the performer that they're doubling. This is designed to help reduce and hopefully ultimately eliminate inappropriate wiggings and paint downs where, right, I mean, it's, it is a problematic practice that should come to an end and they're gonna now have to consult with the union so we can help them if they can't find them themselves, find qualified stunt performers to avoid the need for wigging and paint downs. 
Also, on hair and makeup equity, we were able to achieve a consultation right for all principal performers if they are, yes, that's right, principal performers who may have concerns about whether a production is going to provide qualified hair and makeup artists who can work with their uh, particular hair type or their complexion or whatever. And the AMPTP is going to provide a notice to producers regarding that requirement. And there's also a requirement that they provide um, appropriate tools and equipment to work on performers' hair of all types and all complexions. One of the things that unfortunately we were not able to achieve in this negotiation was the application of this new rule to background actors. And it's very disappointing that we weren't able to achieve that, but I promise you it remains on our top of our agenda and we will continue to pursue that until the companies acknowledge that the same type of protections ought to apply to background actors in this area. There's also a commitment made in this contract to work together uh, the AMPTP, us, and industry partners, including the industry union, relevant industry unions, to expand and maintain a pool of qualified hairstylists and makeup artists and to fund training so that that pool can grow. Continuing on equity and inclusion, I want to talk a little bit about sharing of self-identification data. So we have um, agreed with the industry to share aggregated diversity statistics back and forth between the companies and the union at least once per year so that everyone can have a better sense of what kind of progress is being made in ensuring that there is an accurate and adequate reflection of the American scene in the work that these companies are providing and what's going up on screen. And on the far right, you'll see there's an elimination of casting data reports. And this is a really important development because we no longer want the producers to have some random PA looking at people and deciding, is someone a certain ethnicity? Is someone got a particular disability? Is someone a certain gender? Instead, we have a new strategy for dealing with this that I'm extremely excited about, which uses our own internal diversity census and the data that we have on our members, combines that with industry reporting so we can get accurate figures based on self-identification about how the industry is doing in inclusion. And this is going to be particularly important. It's important for everybody, and thank you for your enthusiasm, Michelle. But it's, <laughs> I know you do, but it's um, particularly important for our, our performers with disability members because um, up until now, the companies have fought even doing that sort of reporting that we just talked about. And now that we'll be able to use self-identification combined with job data, we will be able to have a much better picture of what's happening with respect to performance with disabilities in this industry. We also are updating the contract to reflect at long last gender neutral language. And so I think we'll all be very pleased to see that. And next, on to sexual harassment prevention. A number of important gains here, the first of which is there is finally a requirement in this contract for the producers to use best efforts to engage intimacy coordinators for all scenes involving nudity or simulated sex, period. And for any other kind of intimate scene, actors have the right to request an intimacy coordinator. And there is an explicit provision prohibiting any retaliation against any member, any actor, any performer 
for requesting an intimacy coordinator. So I just want to acknowledge this is the result of years of work building capacity, building, uh, helping certify training programs, helping more intimacy coordinators get certified and enrolled on our registry so there are enough intimacy coordinators to actually fulfill the needs of this industry in doing this. And so um, I think that's a really great accomplishment. We're also going to have significantly improved notification to all members, performers, background actors, regarding non-discrimination and anti-harassment policies, including specific instructions for reporting violations. And that'll be made available not only in your start paperwork, but through things like call sheets, posting in background holding areas, and other, and other places where our members are likely to see those notices and have access to that information. For background actors, for the first time, there is a requirement of advance notice if a role includes any kind of nudity or simulated sex, and prior, that notice has to be provided prior to the audition or interview, if known, uh, in a casting notice and at least 48 hours uh, in advance of call time. And um, that can, notice can be provided by the background casting agency, so that background actors are no longer put in a position of having to make snap on the spot decisions about whether they do or don't want to accept work that involves uh, nudity or simulated sex. And finally, we have an increase in training with a commitment to reviewing and updating the industry's training uh, programs, harassment prevention programs, and to also um, improve on best practices for scenes that have or involve nudity or simulated sex, and for handling any kind of triggering scene in a trauma-informed manner so that our members can be at their best when performing their work and not have to worry about those things being handled correctly. So very excited about that. And I know you're like, is this presentation ever going to come to an end? And the answer is yes, we're almost there. But there was so much that we had to create this last slide, which as you can see, contains a whole bunch of other things that are in this. We didn't want anyone to think we were leaving anything out, but we also knew that, that you know, this presentation couldn't go on literally forever. I do know that the, there's a question, uh, I think Mr. Dulloff wanted to ask about looping, which is the second bullet on this, and then I'll ask uh, Ray if there's any of these we want to highlight in particular or maybe he and I can do that together. But David, do you wanna ask your question? Uh, sure, thanks. Uh, first of all, hi everybody, welcome, and thank you for being here. Um, uh, be before I ask my question, I just wanna reiterate one thing that uh, I wanna make sure does not fall silent on all of us, was the raising of the caps, those pension and health caps of $180 million. You may know or not know that some of us were a little upset three years ago to what might have happened to certain people in our health plan. And all of us collectively uh, are very, very happy. And we have told the trustees, we've directed to them that uh, that money should be used to help mitigate some of those things that happened three years ago. So we're very excited about that. My, uh, my, my question, Duncan, is that um, being a voiceover performer myself is that we voiceover performers feel that we're in the first line of fire when it comes to artificial intelligence. And I, I, want to, I want you to just um, you know, go on a little bit about the protections that we put in place, especially for our loopers, uh, who are extremely uh, concerned right now that they're going to be replaced by AI. Um, uh, so I'd like you just to talk about that and reassure everyone that uh, that's not the case, that we've done everything we can to put in place protections to make sure, especially for group loopers, that that work is not going to disappear. 
Yeah, no, thanks, David. I appreciate that. So first of all, let me say, I think we all recognize that voice actors are at the, you know, on the cutting edge of what's happening with AI just because of technology and the fact that it's technically easier at this moment for them to do things with voice only than it is for them to do things with audio visual. So we've been mindful of that and that was definitely something we had at the forefront of our thoughts as we uh, planned for and carried out this negotiation and strike. Um, so a few things that I would say to Loopers. Number one, or really to any kind of voiceover actor, the protections that we have for digital replication of your voice are equally strong as the protections for digital replication of your face or your body or your performance. And so a voice performance is equally protected as any other type of performance in digital replication. If they want to create a digital replica of your voice, they must get your informed consent, just like we talked about before. If they want to make use of that digital replica, they have to pay for that in accordance with the provisions that we talked about, whether it's an employment-based digital replica or an independently created one. And uh, so all of those protections are in place. But I think one of the things that voice actors in particular are concerned about are synthetic voices. In other words, the creation of, a, of an artificial voice that's not meant to be a digital replica of a particular performer's voice. And how can <coughs> you be confident that though that's not gonna overtake all of those jobs that you were talking about during the term of this contract. That's one of the reasons why it was so important for us to hold out for generative AI protections that we did. And while we do not have a union consent provision, we don't have something where we can just say, no, we're blocking it all, our strategy for making sure that those jobs don't go away is the following. Number one, there is a notice requirement in the event that that is ever done. Uh, we don't know for sure if it will be done by these companies under this contract, but if it is, they have to tell us. And number two, we have the ability to negotiate for compensation and uh, for consideration for that. And our strategy, of course, will be to, as I mentioned before, for other types of performers, to negotiate compensation that makes that economically not advantageous for the companies. Because one thing we can always count on is their determination to do everything in the cheapest possible way. And so if we make sure that it's more expensive to use a synthetic voice to replace someone, then they will not have an incentive to do it. And so that's what we'll be doing during the term of this contract. And of course, continuing to monitor how this develops. And if we find that that approach is either leaving gaps or not adequately protecting it, then we'll address it in two and a half years. And I want to acknowledge, I don't think that answer is gonna take away all fear of loopers or frankly anybody else, nor, nor should it. A certain amount of fear can be healthy because it keeps us focused on the right priorities and makes sure that we know this is something that needs attention. But it is, um, in my view, it is a very significant level of protection. So I think that it does give some assurance to our loopers and others that during the term of this contract, that's not gonna happen. And when we come back to the bargaining table in two and a half years, we'll continue to fight for even greater protections to help make sure as this technology develops, that that doesn't happen. Thank you, thank you very much, Duncan. Thank you. No, thanks for the thanks for the question, David. And um, I know Ray, we we there were a few of these. I don't know if we need to go through all of them because then we should have just made slides for each and every one of them. But I guess we can just say there are significant improvements in many of these areas. Uh, maybe if people want to ask questions about any of these topics, then we can respond with details, or you can just look in the um, summary and you can see for yourself uh, what the changes are that relate to each of these areas, just so we can get on to the questions and answers. I, I know we want to make sure there's plenty of time for that. Is that all right? Yeah. Great. 
Okay, well then, uh, I think our last slide is just one that reminds you that you can find this information online at sagafter.org slash contracts 2023. There is the summary. Uh, there is an explainer regarding AI. There are FAQs and quite a lot of them. And basically, whenever we're hearing questions that get asked more than once or more than a few times, we're trying to add them to the FAQs on the website. So please uh, check those out. And I guess there's some questions. I wasn't sure if there would be any. 